Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness and for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning and that great is your faithfulness. And so, Lord, we just sit at your feet today and we want to hear from you. So please speak to our hearts, Lord. Have your way with us. Guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. Lord willing, cover 32 and 33 today. And uh, just for context a little bit, Jeremiah, by this time in Israel's history, in Judah's history, I'm sorry, by this time in Judah's history, Jeremiah has been preaching for about 40 years. And his message can basically be summed up in one word, which we might say is repent. Repent. Uh, repent because judgment is coming. And uh, that's been the message for 40 years. We know that there's been very little response to that message. Actually, hardly any response to that message other than getting Jeremiah thrown in prison and various uh, things like that. Uh, we know by this time in Judah's history, uh, he's been saying for 40 years, the Babylonians are going to come. Repent. Uh, repent as an individual. The call is always an individual to repent, but also for a nation to repent. There are, there are sort of national uh, and cultural um, well, the Lord deals with nations, let's put it that way. And, um, and so part of the message is, uh, repent, the Babylonians are coming, they're going to bring God's judgment. And lo and behold, at this point in their history, the Babylonians have come twice. Um, one in, once in 605 BC, they carried off a bunch of captives. Uh, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They came again in around 597 B.C., and in that wave they took off a bunch of captives. Uh, Ezekiel was in that group. And now here we find ourselves for the third and what will be the final time that the Babylonians are coming. And uh, the way they're coming this time is that they've surrounded the city of Jerusalem with a, with a siege and basically starving the people out. Well, you know, you starve people out for, for about a year and a half, and they're pretty weak when it comes time to do battle, right? When it comes time to, to take down the walls, move into the city, and uh, your enemy now has been uh, starving for a year and a half. And so, you know, it's a pretty slam dunk victory for the Babylonians. And so um, that's really what's come, what's, what's come to pass. And the picture I want to paint of this is, this is the midst that we find ourselves in. The Babylonians are around um, uh, the city. Uh, now for the third time, looks pretty inevitable that, that this is grim. And, um, and so these are the words we read during that setting. So chapter 32, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. And so, again, the idea here is Zedekiah will be the last king of, of Judah, right? Why do you know he's the last king of Judah? Well, because I said so, and you can take everything I say uh, with that level of authority. Uh, but also, you know that Zedekiah starts with a Z, right? So Z would be the last king, Zedekiah. Memorization tricks come at no extra cost. So Zedekiah, the last king, he's now put Jeremiah in prison. So again, I don't know about you, like... In my life, and, and this is really, this, this is for all of us, we all have this sort of parallel and yet not, uh, like we can't separate them. But there's the reality is there's, there's my life and my ministry. Does that make sense? They go hand in hand. My, I mean, my life is a minister, 
as we all are, not just because I'm standing here, but if you're a Christian, you're a minister, and you have a, and you have a, a God-ordained, please don't, don't miss this, you have a God-ordained mission field and ministry influence that I don't have and that nobody else on earth has. And you've been placed on this earth, in this place, for such a time as this. And I'm ever more impressed with that and aware of that. So anyway, having said that, so there's, there's, there's Scott the minister, but Scott the life, right? And they kind of go hand in hand. And the reason I, I kind of bring that out is, so just picture, hang with me for a second, Jeremiah the life, okay? Well, the life is... Uh, Lord, this place you've put me in is Jerusalem, surrounded by Babylonians. Uh, the time you've put me in is a pretty dismal time in Israel's history. And the particular scenario you've put me in is in prison, right? That's Jeremiah the life. How's that going to impact Jeremiah the minister, right? Now, when your life is stressed, when you feel like the Babylonians are surrounding you, when you feel like you're unjustly accused, when you feel like this and this and this and this, how effective are you as a minister? You tend to, I mean, there's an overwhelming temptation to scrap the ministry part because you're just consumed with self-preservation, right? Totally. I got it. Totally. <laughs> That's why I had a lot of kids. I had a lot of kids because uh, around lunchtime, they're all going to be hungry. And they're also incentivized then to um, affirm me. It's pretty self-indulgent, but that's how it is. So you're, when, you're, when you're all about self-preservation and that's, that's consuming you, it kind of impacts your role as a minister. And I love the example of Jeremiah is that this guy is resilient. And this guy is still all about hearing from the Lord, ministry, all of that, right? He's been doing this for 40 years. And even now, this is probably his worst uh, situation. And so um, he's in prison and it's not good for him. So why is he in prison? Verse 3. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I'll give the city of, into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. So why is Jeremiah in prison? Because he's been saying, thus says the Lord, the king of Babylon is going to come and take the city. Right? Zedekiah put Jeremiah in prison for speaking the truth. Zedekiah put Jeremiah in prison for speaking the truth. And in a world of conflicting worldviews, Please don't be surprised if you find yourself being persecuted for speaking the truth, okay? And let me just say this also uh, while I'm thinking about it here. Uh, I was reminded again of this this week. We had friends come visit from Indianapolis who um, are involved in a, in a church up there. And, and, and I just realized, you know, when I, you know, when I talk to people from, you know, just sort of a different, a different part of the globe, right, or a different part of the state or anything like that, I'm always, always kind of curious what's life like in, you know, in their little world. And honestly, the world's kind of tough right now. Um, and as I'm trying to unpack it, and I don't have all the answers, but one of the things that, I've un, that I was kind of unpacking is they're in the midst of uh, just where they live and some of the cultural context. There's a strong social narrative going on right now. Now, we live in a certain place where there's, always a, there's also always a social narrative. We can read on CNN and, you know, know there's a social narrative. And, 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 and yet, they're kind of, it's a little more tangible for them just based on where they live and, and some of that sort of thing. But it just kind of made me, as I was kind of thinking and reflecting, I just want to alert us to... As we try to discern, can I encourage us, beware of the power of propaganda. 
Beware of the power of propaganda. And can I say that's not, a, that's not just a 21st century thing. It was powerful for Zedekiah. Zedekiah knew the power of propaganda, and therefore Jeremiah was a bad guy. Why was Jeremiah a bad guy? Because Jeremiah was preaching a narrative that was contrary to, hey, everything's good. We can keep sinning and living our lives and, and worshiping pagan idols, and there's going to be no punishment for it. That's the social narrative put forth by the kings of Judah. Jeremiah happens to want to speak truth into that narrative, and we have a conflict. Does that seem relevant for today? Does that seem relevant for today? I think it seems extremely relevant for today. There is a social narrative. There's a political narrative. There's, a, there's every na narrative imaginable that may or may not be uh, true. And um, as, as Trace and I were unpacking this with our friends a little bit, you know, uh, I'm reminded of the scripture that says over and over again, you know, there's, there's deception in the world. So we shouldn't be surprised if people act like they're deceived. On the other side, uh, I believe it's Corinthians that says these things are spiritually discerned. So there's a spiritual discernment that happens and there's deception that happens, and there's lots of narratives with lots of conflicting worldviews. And let me just say, lest, lest we think we're immune from all of this, because we're Christians and we're enlightened and we're smart, let me just say we're all vulnerable. I find myself, well, I find myself um, so I'm a doctor, okay? So I'm a doctor, so I'm in the midst of a lot of narrative about COVID, okay? I'm trying to avoid controversy. How am I doing so far? I'm a doctor. I'm in the midst of a lot of narrative about COVID. Everybody okay so far? All right. So, Some of the narrative I agree with and some of them I don't agree with. Is that fair so far? Here's what I'm no starting to notice. The narrative that I agree with, I don't really like how it's presented oftentimes. Is that fair? And what I'm finding is, please catch this, what I'm finding is even some of the narrative that I agree with it's got sort of its own flavor of propaganda. Does that make sense? So, just for brush-stroking terms, there's definitely right-wing propaganda. There's definitely left-wing propaganda. And I would encourage us to beware of just the power of propaganda. And let's... Let's be ones that listen to and discern the truth through the filter of Scripture, right? And when we have opportunity to speak, here's one of the hallmarks in my mind. This is, this is one of my, like, this is sort of my litmus test or my red flag for propaganda. If I have to scream it, then why can't just the fact of the truth speak for itself? If I have to scream it, there's probably a little potential that I'm dipping into the propaganda realm. Is that fair? Does that make sense? So um, just be aware of that, if you will, and I find that necessary to pause as I'm thinking about Zedekiah has such an agenda for propaganda, and clearly our worldview today is in, is in need of that. And for us, we need to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 encourages us to speak the truth in love. And when we speak, ask ourselves, is it full of the fruit of the Spirit? Is it necessary? Is it helpful? All those sorts of things. Is it edifying? Ephesians tells us to not let any unwholesome word come out of our mouth except what is necessary for edification, for building others up according to their needs. So, verse 4, he goes on, And Zedekiah... This is what Jeremiah is saying. 
that the king of Babylon's coming. And oh, by the way, Jeremiah is also saying that Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. So this would have been a little contrary to Zedekiah's narrative, right? By the way, the king of Babylon's coming, and by the way, uh, you're going to be delivered into his hand, and you're going to speak to him face to face, and you're going to see him eye to eye. Now, Jeremiah is very specific about uh, the downfall of Zedekiah. But I believe even at this point, keep in mind, Zedekiah could repent, right? Even at this point, Zedekiah is not dead. His time on earth is not done yet. He could repent. Now notice it says here, and I just want to bring this out just the way sort of prophecy is written a little bit. Uh, it, says it's, it says that Zedekiah is going to see him eye to eye. He's going to come eye to eye with king of Babylon, right? Flip over to the right just a bit. Ezekiel chapter 12. Look at verse 13. Ezekiel, you know, Jeremiah is prophesying from Jerusalem. Ezekiel at this point is prophesying from Babylon because he got carried off in 597. Ezekiel says, I will spread my net over him, speaking uh, prophetically, and over him, meaning over Zedekiah, and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he die there. Wait a minute, how does this work? Ezekiel says Zedekiah is not going to see it. Jeremiah says he's going to look Nebuchadnezzar in the eye and see him face to face, right? How does that work? Well, turn back to Jeremiah chapter 39. starting verse 4. So it was when Zedekiah, this is fast forwarding now to the actual event. So it was when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them that they fled and went out of the city by night. This is when the Babylonians broke the walls and came in. By way of the king's garden, by the gate between the two walls. And he went out of the way by the plain. So uh, Babylonians conquer finally after the long year and a half siege. Jeremiah tries to slip out the back door. I'm sorry, Zedekiah tries to slip out the back door. But the Chaldean army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had captured him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. So what happened? Zedekiah saw the king of Babylon face to face and eye to eye. And the last thing he saw was the death of his sons and his nobles. And then Nebuchadnezzar, sorry to be graphic, then Nebuchadnezzar removes Zedekiah's eyes, carries him off to Babylon. The prophecies of both Ezekiel and Jeremiah are fulfilled literally, right? And I just like these examples. I like to point them out when prophecy is fulfilled literally because God is very uh, literally detailed when he, when he speaks. Verse 6, and Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, this is while he's in prison now, keep this in mind. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field which is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Now, I love this. I just love this. Do you love this? Totally. Totally. And he's not even my son. I love this, right? Jeremiah is in prison. The Babylonian army is surrounding him. The word of the Lord comes to him and says, you know, this would be a good time to buy a little real estate in Judah. Now, if you were a speculator, would you think now is a good time to buy some real estate in Judah? If you're Jeremiah, okay, let's say you got... Okay, let's say you're not a speculator. Let's say you're a prophet and you know stuff, right? You know what's going to happen. What's going to happen? Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to decimate Judah. 
So is it a good time to buy real estate? It's a horrible time to buy real estate. This is a bad investment, worldly speaking, okay? But it's fascinating, God's timing. Again, we kind of brought this out last week a little bit. In this time period, when the Babylonians are around them, and I want you to see this, God wants to encourage his people. God wants to encourage his people. So there is a, there is a, a, a purpose for what God is doing here. So God tells Jeremiah, now would be a good time to buy some real estate. And Shalom, your uncle, you know, uh, you know how the uh, Jewish economic culture worked, right? When somebody had a, a piece of property, um, you know, it was offered to uh, the nearest relative, and then, you know, if the nearest relative didn't want to buy it, the next nearest relative, you know, had option. You remember the story of Ruth and Boaz um, uh, came about that way. But anyway, so uh, that way, you know, property sort of stayed within families. So anyway, makes sense. Your relative, he's going to come and say, you know, I th- think I want to liquidate my field there in Anathoth. Uh, would you buy it? And so then, sure enough, verse 8, Hannah Mel, my uncle's son, this would have been his cousin then, my uncle's son came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours, buy it for yourself. And then he'd look at this. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. I want you to notice this. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. So what happens is in verse uh, 6 and 7, we see the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And then in verse 8, this event comes that matches up. You know, the word of the Lord, Jeremiah is going to, you know, Jeremiah hears God say, uh, your cousin's going to come and, and ask you to buy some real estate. When he does, I want you to buy it. And then next verse, his cousin comes and says, hey, would you buy my real estate? And so Jeremiah then says, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Now, let's consider this. Sometimes when we read these prophets, right, it says, thus says the Lord said to me, whatever like this, you, f- you get this feeling like, uh, particularly with the Old Testament prophets, you get this feeling like they had God like on speed dial, right? And God just called him and like, there's no real like work to discern the voice of the Lord, right? God said to me, you ever, you ever troubled by that? Like, I wish God would talk to me like he talked to Jeremiah. Well, I think this gives us a little bit of insight in the fact that even Jeremiah recognizes the need for confirmation, right? And so the way I kind of picture this is almost like maybe this thought came in Jeremiah's head, right? Hey, your cousin's going to come and and uh, tell you to buy this real estate. And as Jeremiah is kind of pondering that, then his cousin comes and says, can you buy the real estate? And he says, oh yeah, that was the word of the Lord. You ever notice that? And I think it may not be quite so audible, if you will, as we sometimes think it is. And the fact that Jeremiah liked the confirmation um, uh, kind of affirms that. I remember when I was, uh, honestly, this doesn't happen to me very often, okay? But I remember one time it did. I remember one time when, um, it's a bit of a long story, I'll try to make it short. But when we left Indianapolis, I don't know, 17 years ago now, maybe, something like that, and uh, uh, really felt like the Lord was moving us down here. Uh, but part of what we were doing, part of, part of that whole process, we left a church up in Indianapolis and uh, moved down here. And you ever notice sometimes when you maybe move a job or you move a job and a location or something like that, there are different ways you can leave. Does that make sense? You can leave like, uh, right? Or you can leave honorably or somewhere in between. Does that make sense? And I wasn't, I was kind of proud of myself that I didn't like really spit in the eye of the pastor at the church up in Indianapolis, but I was a little bit like, yeah, whatever, you know. And, I, and honestly, I wasn't as honorable as I should have been. That's the point. And part of, you know, the Lord is bringing us down here and all that, and I get that. But in my mind, I'm like, I'm never going to see him again. What is, who cares? Right? And I hadn't talked to this guy in, in probably two or three years. You know, I'd settled in Madison and all this kind of stuff. And I'm literally getting ready one morning to go to work. 
And this thought comes inside my head. You know, you should apologize to Bill. You weren't very honorable. And I'm like, you ever have a thought like that? Like, completely out of the blue, I haven't seen or talked to or known he existed for the last two or three years. Oh, you ought to apologize to Bill. You weren't very honorable. Now, I don't know if you ever do this, so then you have a dialogue with the Lord, right? Because you're sort of, you had this thought, so now you're obligated to have this dialogue with, with the Lord. So then if you're as spiritual as I am, you'll say something like, yeah, no problem, Lord, I'll get around to that next time I see him. Because <laughs> I'm never going to see him, right? He's up in Indianapolis, I'm here, no biggie, right? I kid you not, I'm not done getting ready for the morning, and my pager goes off. This is the day of digital pagers, Right? I'm being recorded, so I won't tell you his phone number. But I, to this day, have his phone number memorized. It kind of sends chills up my, down my spine, right? I know his phone number. I get this page, digital page. It's his phone number. And he was calling to ask me some completely unrelated question about something else, and I don't even know what it was, but that's not the point. The point was, the Lord was doing a work. And I sat there, and I said, You're not going to believe this, but I think the Lord just told me that I should apologize to you. And I sat there in the bathroom and cried like a baby. Fifteen years later, I still cry like a baby thinking about it. And you know what? He and I have sweet fellowship now. We see each other fairly frequently. And I talked to him this week, and he's a great support to Tracy and I, great encouragement, great faithful man of God, amazing guy. And we have a restored relationship, right? And so, anyway, all that to say, sometimes it's not just, number one, God doesn't always give you an audible, like, call you on the phone, okay? It is nice to have a little confirmation, right? Even Jeremiah said, hey, then I knew that that was the word of the Lord. And so sometimes God, you know, likes to still do that kind of thing today. And so just be aware when he does that. But can I ask you, can I tell you this? Uh, Be careful a little bit, right? Because sometimes I, I have heard People say, I heard one time, I remember a guy telling me one time, he said, I remember one time I was doing something stupid and God spoke to me and he said, you're an idiot. And I'm like, sorry, God doesn't say that. Right? So we still need tons of discernment, right? So whatever that voice in your head is that you're trying to think, is this the voice of the Lord? Uh, It's got to be consistent with his word. He doesn't contradict himself. And, um, you know, his word is the primary way that he speaks. Uh, he doesn't speak in a way that's inconsistent with his character. Uh, Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So he's not going to tell you anything that's uh, condemnation. Second uh, Peter or Second Timothy tells us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. He's not going to speak anything that'll scare you. He's not going to scare you into into any kind of action or anything like that. But he does, I believe, speak to our hearts a little bit. And I think it's it's a healthy exercise to discern: Is that you, Lord? And and line it up with Scripture, and then act on it accordingly, right? And so, verse nine, Jeremiah is going to act on it accordingly. So. This guy showed up after I believed the, the Lord spoke to me, and yep, this was a new, I knew the word from the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. You like this? Jeremiah is in prison in a nation that's about ready to be destroyed by the Babylonians, and he knows it. They're going to be carried off to captivity for 70 years, and Jeremiah knows it. He's, rent, he's mentioned that a couple times now. And by golly, I'm going to buy some real estate. <laughs> Sight unseen. So he's buying it from prison. And uh, please notice that following the word of the Lord is not always practical. Following the word of the Lord is not always practical. 
Verse 10, and I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both the, that which was sealed according to the law and, and the custom and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. So there we are, we gathered and had a big signing ceremony there in prison, sat around the closing table, and uh, got all the deeds taken care of. And so he entrusts the paperwork to Baruch, uh, his assistant. This is the first mention of Baruch. We'll be reading about him more as the rest of the book goes on. And then I charged Baruch, verse 13, before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open, and put them in the earthen vessel which, that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So I mentioned God has a purpose in all this, right? What's God's purpose? How, he wants everybody to know Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. God wants the Jewish people to know, I'm not done with you. Yes, I'm bringing punishment. Yes, I know the Babylonians are outside the walls. I am bringing punishment. You can still repent, but I'm bringing punishment on this nation. But it's not going to be indefinite. And at some point, 70 years specifically, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. And to prove it, I caused my servant, my prophet, Jeremiah, to buy a piece of land here. And so what's he do? He's got basically two different deeds. One deed is for everybody to see right now, right? And the other deed is to be sealed up in an earthen vessel, right? Interestingly, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in earthen vessels, right? And so it would have been a common thing in those days. And so he puts this in earthen vessels because he knows that in 70 years... I mean, Jeremiah's probably not going to live uh, that long, but somebody's going to come back, and Jeremiah's uh, kin are going to be ready to find that deed and um, carry on. And so even in Jeremiah's own life, 70 years is going to, you know, he knows that's probably going to exceed his lifespan, uh, barring some, some miracle. But he doesn't care. He, all, he only cares about obeying the Lord. And he thinks beyond himself, by the way. He thinks beyond himself. He knows that in his lifetime, that doesn't make financial sense. But that's not what it's about. God's not always just about financial sense. And so verse 16 to 25 for, the, for these next few verses, it's kind of interesting. Jeremiah then goes into this dialogue with the Lord. And you think about it, it, sounds, it almost sounds like the book of Psalms, right? And, and I like this. You know, sometimes when life seems crazy, or when God doesn't seem to make sense, or when God's telling you to buy a piece of real estate when you're in prison, uh, sometimes it's a healthy exercise to review who God is. And review, sort of maybe even with yourself or with the Lord, sort of this little bit of a dialogue. And so he does this. Verse 16, Now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. So whenever you're trying to question the Lord and you need to review kind of who God is, a good place to start is his omnipotence. Don't forget that God is omnipotent. God can do anything. There is nothing too hard for God. Verse 18, you show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers to, into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, you are great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day and in Israel and among other men, and you have made for yourself a name as it is this day. And so uh, Jeremiah recounting God's justice. That's good to remember. Verse 21, you have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and with a strong hand and an outstretched arm with great terror. You have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, sometimes it's good to remember God's care for his people. You know, when you're wrestling with God, what do you want me to do today? And, and I think I hear the voice of the Lord, and I think you're telling me to do this, and, and it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it's good to remember, God, you know, you're amazing. You're able to do anything. You're fully just, and you're fully able to care for your people. And I know that by history because you've cared for me so many times in so many wonderful ways. 
Verse 23, and they came in and they took possession of it, the Jewish people, our ancestors. But they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come on them, upon them. Look, the siege mounts. They have come to the city to take it. And the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans to, who fight against it because of the sword and the famine and the pestilence. That you, What you have spoken has happened. There you see it. And so, uh, at this point, he's recounting uh, the fact that Israel is sin and, they res and the resulting punishment, what they deserve. That's a good thing to remember, right? Can I tell you, one of the worst things to do when you're trying to discern the Lord is tell God what you deserve. Well, you know, I deserve better treatment than this, Lord. Well, you're off base. Why are you doing this, Lord? Because I think I, that's too hard for me. I, I should have a, a, an easier way to go. He's reminding God, or reminding himself in his prayer, you know what, we have sinned, and we got exactly what we deserved accordingly. And then he finishes this prayer. He says, and now you've said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses, yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans? And so finally, only in the context of God's omnipotence, God's justice, God's care for his people, a recognition of his own sin, his own nation's sin, and the punishment that comes as a result of that, in the context of that, Jeremiah asked God a question. So now you've told me to buy this? I mean, he, he obeyed, and I love it. He goes through the questioning. You know, sometimes in our family, we call it verbal processing, right? Sometimes in our family, we verbal process, Right? Well, Jeremiah is verbally processing. It's got nothing to do with the decision. He's already made the decision to buy the land, right? He's already bought it. He sealed the deed. Everything's done. But now he's processing with the Lord. And that's okay. That's okay. There you go. Murphy's, it's affirmed right there in Scripture. Verbal processing, right? He's verbal processing with the Lord. And, but only in the context of a right understanding of who God is. And I like that. So God answers. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, of the, God, uh, the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? So he's reiterating what Jeremiah said. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come and set fire to this city and burn it with the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it, even to this day. So I will remove it from before my face because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, their men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so he's saying, yep, sure enough, you're right. I am going to bring judgment and uh, there's good reason for it, right? And they have turned to me the back and not the face, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction, but they have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them, nor did it come to my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin." So God's just explaining why he's bringing in punishment. He's reiterating it. He's said it millions of times by this point. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of the of all countries where I've driven them in my anger, in my fury, in my great wrath, I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. <coughs> they shall be my people and I will be their God. So you got to love the heart of God. God's saying, you're right, Jeremiah. I am, am going to bring destruction on this city, on this land. And there's good reason for it. And I just explained all that. Now, therefore, the people are going to come back. I'm going to gather 
I'm going to gather the people. God will bring just restoration. And he says, and he says this, he said this over and over last week we talked about, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Can I tell you this? Nobody can take that away from us. They shall be my people and I shall be their God, he says. And the fact that we are God's, we are his, he owns us. He takes care of us. He is so, so good as we sang about. And he's just and he lets us go through things and sometimes he brings about lessons in our lives that we don't fully understand. But we have to rest in the truth of Scripture that He's good and He loves us and we are His and He is our God. Verse 39, Then, then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me yes I will rejoice over them to do them good and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul and so the idea here so again we talked about this in the past we talked about this last week there's sort of a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment right and so the partial fulfillment that we're going to see is the the Israelites are going to come back from Babylon after 70 years during the time of, of uh, King Cyrus we read that in Ezra and Nehemiah and so after 70 years these captives are going to come back but that's a partial fulfillment right there's going to be a regathering of the Jewish people back to the land right it was a little more fulfilled in 1948 right what do we have we have the Jewish people regathered in the land right but we don't see yet um, things like uh, the good and they're peaceful and you know all we don't see all of the promises yet fulfilled right and so I believe it speaks ultimately to the thousand-year reign of Christ, what we call the millennial kingdom that happens after the time of the Great Tribulation. And so uh, some people call it the kingdom age. And so that is really what he's referring to here in these verses. And that's the idea of an everlasting covenant. And then in verse 42, he goes on, For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. And fields will be bought in this land of which you say, it is desolate without man or beast. It has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds, and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem. And so the land of Benjamin is where this field was that he bought. In the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, and the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, and the cities of the south, for I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. And so what the Lord is basically saying to Jeremiah is, it's a good investment long term. It's a good investment long-term, and I'm seeing things long-term. And so, um, God wants us, God wants his people to know that there is hope. There's hope for their people, and in this we see hope even yet today. Whatever, whatever we're going through, God has a big picture, and God has a big picture that's for our good. So chapter 33 I want to just read this briefly. Um, we'll kind of brush stroke it a little bit. And again, God wants to encourage his children during this great time of, of difficulty. This is still the same time period as chapter 32. And so chapter 32 spoke of the return of the captives and, you know, the whole lesson with the real estate and all that. Whereas 32 looks, or 33 looks a little more specifically at this millennial kingdom. Okay? So verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison. So the Babylonians are outside. Uh, Jeremiah is still in prison. Now he owns the field in Anathoth. But otherwise, everything's still the same setting. Thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Now this is a famous verse. But can I tell you this? God calls us. God invites us to call on him. God invites us to call on him in any situation. And again, this is a situation where Jeremiah is in prison. His 
countrymen are surrounded by Babylonians. It's the worst of the worst of situations. And in that situation, God invites his people to call on him. God always invites a personal invitation because he always wants fellowship in any circumstance with his children. And notice one of the things he says here. He said, I'm going to show you things which you do not know. Now, it makes sense that God is smarter than we are. God knows more than we are. Is that a stretch for anybody? No. God knows more than we do. And yet, how often do we maybe argue with God as if we're on the same level as He is? Like we see the same perspective that He does. We do it all the time. And what, he's, what I believe He would lovingly want to encourage us is he sees things that we don't see. I'm going to show you great and mighty things which you do not know. God's blessing, God's goodness, God's favor is always beyond our understanding. Philippians 4, 7 says this, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God passes all understanding. And you know, we know that, we, we read that. We don't always experience that because sometimes we're kind of stuck in our own perspective. And yet, again, I've mentioned this before, I remember when my, when my dad was dying. He had a peace. He knew he was going to be with the Lord soon. And it was very clearly beyond all understanding. It made no sense. But he had a peace. He was just like, I mean, I've never seen, I've known my dad for 59 years. And he was just like ready for death. It was amazing. It was amazing. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He tells Jeremiah, call to me and answer, I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. It sounds obvious, but don't forget that God knows more than you do. Don't forget that God knows more than you do. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and against the, and against the sword. So they've been tearing down the houses of the kings so they can kind of push them up against and try to fortify the wall. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men whom I will slay with my anger and my fury for all, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. And so, you know, God's explaining again why they're in this present distress. Behold, I will, bring it, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at the first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. And so I believe this points to the millennium, okay? He speaks of, of number one, bringing Israel and Judah together. By this point in time, uh, Judah and Israel are still separated, right? And so he's certainly talking about a future regathering. Now we could say that was in 1948. Um, but he says also he's going to pardon all their iniquities. And he says all the nations of the earth are going to look up to uh, the Jewish people and to the city of Jerusalem, right? They shall, it shall be a to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all nations of the earth. And they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Let me ask you this. So the nation has been regathered in 1948. But if you read the news today, do all the nations of the earth look to Israel and they say, wow, you're awesome and your God is awesome. Do they do that? We see that in Israel? No, quite the contrary. 
We see other prophecy fulfilled about Israel uh, in terms of their trial with other nations, right? But the day will come when all the nations, all the nations will look to Israel and they'll say, wow, your God is awesome. And that'll be in the millennial kingdom. And so I believe, again, if you take these verses as literally as possible, then this points only to the millennial kingdom, or ultimately to the millennial kingdom. Verse 10, thus says the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say, it is desolate without man or without beast in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant, without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, praise the Lord of hosts for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first, says the Lord. And so you see this? God, God knows the situation they're in, and he wants them to try to visualize, and he's trying to describe to them, the day is going to come. I know the Babylonians are outside right now. I know you're starving to death. I know you're resorting to cannibalism for survival. But the day is going to come when there's the voice of joy, there's the voice of gladness, there's the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, and they're all going to say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. Again, God always wants us to have hope. God always wants us to have hope. And he does that, among other things, by revealing to us his bigger picture, always bigger than what we see. So when we're in that situation, we feel like we're at the end of our rope, we're at the end of, of everything, the Babylonians are outside, we're in prison. He's telling us to do stuff that seems ridiculous, like buy real estate. He says, you know what? The day's going to come when in this place that you call desolate, they're going to be singing and dancing and praising the Lord. That's hope. That's hope. Joy and celebration will return to Jerusalem, he promises. Verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place which is desolate, I know that it's desolate, he's saying, without man, without beast, and with all its cities, there shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds, causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities and in the, of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, in the cities in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, and the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the lands of him who counts them, says the Lord. I believe in the millennial kingdom. There'll be shepherds out there just kind of chilling with their sheep. Sounds kind of peaceful, doesn't it? Right? feel like you want to read Psalm 23 sitting out there, right? A very strikingly different scene than a Babylonian siege. Literally flocks will graze in the land. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. So again, God's going to perform all of his prophecies regarding both Israel and Judah. And so God is not done uh, fulfilling all these prophecies. And God promises over and over and over again, I'm not done with Israel and Judah. I'm not done with the Jewish people. This all gets fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which he, she sh will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And so, you know, in those days, a descendant of David is going to reign, or in the, in, the, in the days he's talking about, the, a descendant of David, who we know to be Jesus, is going to reign in righteousness. Because of Jesus' reign, right, it says Jerusalem will dwell safely, right? Again, okay, in, uh, you know, 586, they got Jerusalem got destroyed, right? Were they feeling safe right now at that point in time? No. You know, fast forward a little while, they, get, they return for a little while, they settle in there, you know, and then uh, a few centuries later, the Romans come, the Romans are, you know, the time, you read about the time of Jesus, the Roman... You know, Roman soldiers are everywhere. Does Jerusalem feel safe? No, sure enough. 70 AD, Jerusalem gets destroyed by the Romans. 
right? Does Jerusalem feel safe? Are they dwelling safely? No. Okay, so you regather in 1948. They're all hanging out there. And let's say even fast forward today. Does Jerusalem dwell safely today? No, I think they probably sleep with one eye open, right? But the millennial kingdom will come. A descendant of David, Jesus, will reign on the throne, and then they will dwell safely. And on a personal level, can I tell you this? When Jesus reigns on your throne, you dwell there safely, right? When Jesus reigns on our throne, we can dwell safely. You know, we can say things like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. When Jesus is on the throne of your heart, you can say things like, you know, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death but I don't fear any evil. I'm not afraid of evil. For you're with me. You reign on my throne. Or you reign on the throne of my heart. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil, a picture of the Holy Spirit. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever does that sound like Jerusalem in the midst of a Babylonian siege does it sound like COVID does it sound like the political narrative we're pushing back against today no it just sounds like peace doesn't it sound like peace you know, God's, the descendant of David, Jesus, is reigning in righteousness in my heart. Someday he's going to reign from Jerusalem over that millennial kingdom. It's going to be awesome. But I don't have to wait for that because he can reign in my heart today. Today. Well, yeah, once COVID's gone, yeah, he'll reign again. No, today. But once, you know, job craziness resolves, no, today. And once political craziness resolves, no, today. Once the narrative is silenced, no, today. When Jesus reigns in our hearts, we can say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, does that mean there'll be, it's easy peasy? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Because we also glory in tribulation. Because tribulation is where we learn how to have perseverance and character and hope, Romans chapter 5. And I don't know about you, I don't want to be a shallow, anemic, fair-weathered Christian. I want to be a resilient Christian, right? Well, sometimes resilience is only learned in the laboratory of tribulation. God knows that. But that doesn't take away the fact that he reigns. He reigns. Verse 17, For thus says the Lord David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. And so, you know, God told David that uh, his descendant would reign on the throne forever. Uh, that's a reference to Jesus. Jesus will reign in the millennium. And um, it would appear from this also that uh, the Levitical priesthood will be reinstated in the millennial kingdom. The descendants of Levi, the son of Jacob, will be out there hanging out, kindling grain offerings and sacrificing continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne with, his le with the Levites, the priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured. So I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and 
the Levites who minister to me. And so you got, you got to like this again. God, every now and then, it resorts to a little divine sarcasm, right? Hey, if you can stop uh, day and night cycles from doing what they do, uh, then, yeah, maybe this covenant with David is not really a thing, right? Well, we can't mess with the day and night cycles, right? Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord has chosen, that's Israel and Judah, he has also cast them off. Thus they have despised my people as if they should no more be a nation before them. I want to just say this just briefly as we close. There is a, um, there are a lot of nations that have, quote, despised my people. You know, we a little bit tongue-in-cheek say, does Jerusalem dwell peacefully? No, they don't, because there's a lot of enemies of the Jewish people. It always has been, right? Isn't it kind of weird that, is there any other nation in, in history? Number one, is there any other nation in history that survived the time, the span of history? But number two, is there anyone that's like, had a Haman that tried to overthrow him, a Pharaoh that tried to overthrow him, and a Hitler that tried to overthrow him, and a, everything else? Everybody, I mean, is that weird? Well, it's not weird scripturally, right? But, you know, there's lots of nations that have, quote, despised my people. And there's also sort of a, uh, sort of a subplot, if you will, I believe, of attack on the Jewish people. And that is to say, you know, God has cast them off. The Jewish people had their chance with the Lord, right? They murdered the Messiah, and God's done with them. And so you can take every one of those prophecies about the Jewish people that are yet unful- uh, unfulfilled, and you can instead apply them to the church, okay? It's called replacement theology, right? And, um, you know, without fighting about it, let me just graciously say, you got to throw out a lot of verses in Scripture if you're going to do that. you got to throw out a lot of verses in Scripture. And then you got to go back and deal with the fact that when Jesus came the first time, he fulfilled prophecy very literally. I don't think you can do it scripturally. And so here's an example. He's saying, you know, there's a lot of people that say, hey, God cast them off. And that's not necessarily uh, a right representation of his word. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with day and night, and I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, and I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. So again, God is reiterating with the day and night thing. Hey, if the day and night thing works, yeah, then I've thrown away the nation of Israel. I mean, if the day and the night thing, you know, stops working, then yeah, you can say I threw away the, the Jewish people. But the day and night thing, sun still came up this morning, didn't it? Right? I'll bet you a dollar. Tonight, sun's going to go down, right? What's going to come up? Anybody? Moon, right? Everybody okay with this? Right? Tomorrow morning, what's going to happen again? Moon comes up, caught you sleeping. Sun comes up, right? Then tomorrow night, moon. Tuesday morning, sun. Tuesday night, moon. Right, everybody with me so far? Right? When that stops happening, then you can say, yeah, God's done with those Jewish people. Right? Well, as of now, God's not done with those Jewish people. And I like that because every now and then I slip and fall, right? I'd kind of like to know that God's not done with me. God has a big prophetic plan. God knows that there's no circumstance that's too big for him. God wants to reign in our hearts. He gives us free choice to let him in or not, right? Somehow in his sovereignty, he gives us enough free choice to walk in that. And 
uh, yet his perspective is always bigger than ours. He wants us to call out to him. He wants to reign in the throne of our, uh, our, of our hearts, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the context. And yet he's going to work out so many wonderful things um, throughout the times that we can just we can just enjoy his goodness along the way. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you have a plan that is eternal. Thank you that we can look forward to, this, to the millennial kingdom when you reign in perfect righteousness and that the streets of Jerusalem will be filled with singing and dancing and rejoicing over your goodness. And yet, Lord, we also recognize that we're capable of that today, that we can sing and rejoice and appreciate your goodness even today, even in the midst of turbulence. And we thank you that you always offer hope. You always offer redemption. You always remind us that all things work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so, Lord, help us to rest in your goodness and yet help us to be diligent ministers of your gospel. Have your way with us, Lord, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.